Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. An episode so good, we brought it back for round two. <laughs> Triple Threat Theater. I'm Joe Daxberg. And I'm Ryan Miller. Millsy. Yeah. Tonight. Shorties 2, The Shortening. <laughs> yep. We've got The Incredible Shrinking Woman from 1981. Mm-hmm. Ant-Man from 2015. Mm-hmm. And Downsizing from 2017. Yeah, we do. It's crazy. Until you start doing like an episode like this or the previous one, mm-hmm. you don't realize how many episodes you could base around this concept. <laughs> That's a good point. I think just because of like the ability to do like fun camera tricks, like especially before CG, mm-hmm. but now with CG, it's like appealing as like something that you can do that will like astound the audience but it's like still practical to do with like uh, forced perspective and oh, yeah. pictures and stuff like sure, that sure sure we could probably plan a third episode like this without even including any ant-man sequels i uh, yeah 100 percent. which uh who knows we're probably due to do that if <laughs> if we do do that i mean what better episode title than one of our best ever shorties <laughs> Uh, which I just remember, like, we were trying to think of something to call it, and either you or I, the first time around, threw out shorties and made the other one laugh, and so we went with it, whether or not it was actually a good yeah. idea. <laughs> and now right. here we are, doing right. the sequel. Like, we didn't even know if that was just, like, a placeholder title or not, but... Yeah. Hey. But here we are. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. Well, Mills. Uh-huh. I know you've seen Ant-Man. So we're both- That's true. We're both superhero movie watchers. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the other two. I saw Downsizing back around the time it came out. Not in the theater, but probably rented it from the library or something. Okay. And uh, my recollection was not being a huge fan and thinking the movie was unusual and not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Which, from my reading, is was most people's opinion, but we'll get to that when we talk about yes, it. <laughs> indeed. And uh, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, I feel like the first time I ever heard of this movie's existence was listening to, it might have been uh, an episode of Mick Garris's podcast, or it might have been an old Shockwaves podcast with John Landis talking mm. about the movie. Okay. And and then I, I want to say maybe it was also included in the In Search of Tomorrow documentary, briefly, maybe, about, like, uh, 80s sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. But I'm not 100% sure. Like, I was only peripherally aware that this movie existed. I was going to say, I feel like this movie is probably v- barely known to the general population. Yeah. I don't know, like, what the popularity 
would have been at the time. Mm-hmm. Like Lily Tomlin is a name that I know, but like prior to watching this, I doubt I could have picked her out of a lineup. Like I, I feel like she was probably a bigger name back then than she is now, although she's still around doing stuff. Mm-hmm. But was this a big deal at the time? I don't know, but it definitely feels like it has been just lost to time. Like it's just been left in the dust of pop culture. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I don't know. I mean, it's 81. I wasn't born yet. Neither were you. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how popular she was at the time. I mean, based on, I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about the movie, but she plays multiple roles. She's got <laughs> Yeah, which I didn't realize until reading about the movie afterwards. After you watched it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I didn't realize that she what? was like two of the main characters. I mean, I double did a double take and I was like, wait, where is this movie going? She's had no idea personally. That's amazing. Yeah, she got quite a big uh as we'll talk about in the poster. I mean, her she got her name on there twice. So, I mean, hmm. she got to she got to be a big draw, but Yeah. Yeah, I'd I, say movie uh lost the time. Uh and man, I'd say it that's at this point is super popular. I don't know. The third one just came out and people are shitting all over it. So, well, I didn't say about uh, you know quality, <laughs> but popular. Yeah, you know, he's been in quite a few Marvel movies at this point. So, um, downsizing. I'm again. We'll get into a lot of the rigmarole of downsizing, but um, I don't know how much of a cultural impact that one had either. Not not much at all. Right, so, <laughs> did you see it at the time or no? No, this was a first time okay. for me. Uh, saw Amy in the theater, of course. Seen it probably a couple times since. Mm-hmm. Downsizing, well aware of the general idea of it, and it was a Matt Damon vehicle. But that's really probably about it. I don't know if it was from you or just in passing reading about that. It's like not well represented in its trailers. Yeah. Um again which we'll get into and then essentially that, people thought it was going to be a com- like like a pretty straight, straight up, comedy. up comedy. And then it it's really not. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean it is, but it is, yeah. but it's like a satirical kind of Yeah. angle more than a straight up comedy that you We expect. will get deep into it. I'm ready. <laughs> When we get to that one. I mean, let's just kick it off then. Let's get into our first movie. All right. Uh, Incredible Shrinking Woman from 1981. I was attracting more and more attention each day. The smaller I got, the bigger my name. The top news story of the day continues to be the Incredible Shrinking Woman. Perhaps the petite Pat Kramer is a metaphor for the modern woman. It is no secret that the role of the modern housewife has become increasingly less significant. Reluctantly, I allowed Judith to talk me into leaving the house, and it resulted in what will forever be known to us all as the supermarket incident. Judith, I don't think this is such a good idea. Not to mention my legs have fallen asleep. I understand, Pat, but you just bear with me. This is chemical warfare, and I want to show you what we're up against. Look at this, we have Mike's Macho Meal. Let's see here. Fortified food flavoring, eco boosters, synthetic spermatozoa, testosterone, inert sugar syrup, tumescent tissue of bull scrotum. Well, I never. 
here we have Cousin Bud Speedy Spuds. Well, this has everything but the kitchen sink. TBH. Judith, I don't think this is working. Please get me out of here. Just ignore them, Pat. Of all the rudeness, don't you all have something you want to shop for? A little poison, maybe? Just get me out of here. So like I said, this was, I, I heard about it in an interview with John Landis, but John Landis is not the director of the movie. Uh, he was the director for a couple of days oh. in February 1979 until the studio dumped him over budgetary concerns. Okay. Uh, I guess at the time in like late 70s, early 80s, it was budgeted to be like a $30 million movie. Well, that's a lot of scratch. Yeah, but then I don't know how exactly it happened. I couldn't find any real details about it, but the decision was made to like slash the budget and focus more on comedy and less on spectacle, I guess. And that caused a problem with John Landis and he left the movie or was fired. Uh, again, that was February 1979. And then they didn't pick up shooting again until August 1979. So like oh. six months later, with Joel Schumacher of all people, <laughs> and then it, it sat on the shelf for a couple of years too. Um, I did, mean, it might have. Well, I don't it know. It might have been a case 81. of like they they did the primary filming, and then there was you know there's a lot of like special effects, miniature stuff, and all that, or or you know, I'm guessing it was just production time, huh. like post production and all. But I, I don't know. I I didn't read anything else about that. This is one of those ones where there's not a ton of info about it out there. Again, I think partially because it's mostly forgotten. Yeah. But, yeah, I never would have guessed uh, Joel Schumacher, the guy that gave us the Lost Boys, Flatliners, Falling Down, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, A Time to Kill, 8mm, Phone Booth, the number 23. I mean, that's a – he definitely has a varied career. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah, this is not something I ever would have guessed was him. Yeah. Um this movie's weird. It certainly is. This movie is weird. It's not just a lady that shrinks. It so when the movie started, there is a movie called The Incredible Shrinking Man from like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's based on a Richard Matheson story. So then at the beginning of this movie, I I don't remember the exact wording, but I think that it was it came up as a title card on screen suggested by the incredible shrinking man by Richard Matheson. Mm. So kind of like, Oh, it's inspired by it. And we're doing a riff on it. Uh, We maybe felt we couldn't get away with like not paying him some royalties or something, even though it's not going to be anything like his story kind of deal. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's a completely screwball comedy. Uh, like a movie that doesn't feel like it's intended to be taken seriously at all. I mean, it does have like some messages. It feels like it's trying to get across about like consumer culture and, you know, chemical, Uh like the chemicals we put into our bodies and things like that. Yeah. Like marketing overuse. Yeah. I feel like it drops that like at some point and then it's just like slapsticky and shit, but. It feels yeah. like it starts out a lot stronger. It's like they're trying to make some, I don't know if they're trying to make it overt or not about uh, the dangers of household chemicals or something. I mean, I think it's incredibly overt. Like the entire beginning of the movie is just 
Uh, Lily Tomlin plays this woman named Pat Kramer who she has two kids. They've they've got a dog. Her husband is one of these like, you know, madmen ad exec, like nine to five, barely ever home kind of guys. And she's running running the home and like doing all the the cleaning and the cooking and the shopping, even though they have a uh like a, a maid, a Latina maid named Concepcion. Mm-hmm. But like the entire beginning of the movie is like she goes shopping at the grocery store and has an enormous like cart full of products and then someone outside the store is trying to sell her this canned cheese that through the dialogue were basically <laughs> it's insinuated that everybody thinks it's like cheese shouldn't be in a can this is a weird concept right and then like her neighbor who's also played by her comes over and tries <laughs> to sell her a bunch of like feminine products and then her husband brings home like some new perfume that his company is putting out or something and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, there's like a laser that shoots Rick Moranis and shrinks him, and an Ant-Man, he's got like a suit that shrinks him, and in this, it's a coincidental combination of all of the chemicals in these like mm-hmm. random 20 products that she happens to have come into contact with in 24 hours mm-hmm. that makes her start to shrink. And so it's obviously like chemicals are bad and there's more and more like products and we're being sold things and we don't know what's in them. And it does have this kind of heavy handed like, like subtext you, to it. Right. Like you have to take it from that. Cause they don't like, they don't acknowledge that at any point later, it feels like, you know, but which part just that the, the I don't feel like they, that's clearly what they're doing in the beginning, but I don't feel like there's ever, it ever like comes back as like a, you know, the, the end of the movie where they're making a message about, uh, you know, watching out for all your household products. At that point, it's just like straight, straight comedy. Like, I mean, it's kind of weird that in the end, she ends up being saved by a random mixture of chemicals right. as well. Right. But like, they're obviously hammering that early in the movie. Oh, and very, it does feel sure. like after act one, they hired a different writer who just turned it into goofball that's comedy. What, that's what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you could have like a straight sci-fi movie with the similar premise, you know, that would be uh, socially conscious about <laughs> about that. But like you said, this one, they just it does feel like they could have brought on a new writer to like mm-hmm. take out take out all that subtext and just uh, go with the jokes, go with more Lily Tomlins. Mm-hmm. I love that you didn't know that was her as I mean, the neighbor. I... That's amazing. You had no idea. Did you like know immediately or something? Or uh, no, I I had to like double take. I did a double take when they first showed her, and then I was it was actually I was looking. I think her hair was a bit different. She was wearing glasses, and I was like trying to. I was like I didn't pause it or anything, but I kept looking at the lady's face, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's her. I was like that. I was looking for like the camera tricks with them both on the screen and all that, but mm-hmm. they did a lot of like showing one from the back where you just saw her hair and the whole thing. And I was like, holy shit, that really is her. Yeah. Nothing ever like clued me into it. And because there was, I felt no reason that I should be expecting something like that. It never, <laughs> right. Yeah, to totally. Like, yeah, you almost think like that, that'd be a, You'd almost think, like, on the poster, even, you'd see, like, multiple shots of the different characters. I, I want to even say there was a third time she showed up, too, but... I think she was in the movie... She was, like, five different people or something. Oh, was it but, that many? So, I was reading that 
so before again, I didn't know anything about Lily Tomlin. I I could have mm-hmm. told you that that name was a famous person. That's about it. Um, Same. But before she got into movies, she was on a television like variety comedy show called Laugh In for a couple of years, and it sounds like it's kind of like a SNL or something where there were like some recurring characters that she played, mm-hmm. and um, I think one or two of the people she plays in the movie, like. The main character, Pat Kramer, and then the neighbor are, like, the two big ones. But then I I want to say I read that there were, like, uh, there's a part where she calls her husband when she's, like, in captivity, and they, she gets cut off. She was also the uh, telephone operator, like, at the switchboard in oh, that one. Okay. That's exactly what it was, yep. Yeah, one scene. And, like, that might have been based on one of her characters. Like, she might have been dressed up and doing the same voice or whatever as one of her characters from Laughing. There was another character that they filmed a scene with her as, like, playing a little kid or something that they cut from the movie. Um, I, I want to say that in the actual finished film, she she's, like, on screen as four different characters oh, wow. at different points. Yeah. But a couple of them were just, like, one scene little bits. Which, again, it makes me wonder, like, this, I feel like this was pretty early in her film career. She had done 9 to 5 before this, which I think was, like, a pretty popular movie, and maybe one or two other things. But, like, I don't know how big of a name she was. Like, was she the real draw to this? And because of her name and, like, the fact that even though I didn't know who she was, like, I, I knew that Lily Tomlin was, like, a famous person I was expecting when looking through her filmography to see like a bunch of other shit I recognize, but it's like, I've heard a nine to five, never seen it. I now know this movie, but then there was like nothing else I really recognized with her until the Beverly Hillbillies movie in like oh. the mid to late nineties. Oh, dang. And then she's in other stuff nowadays. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, even as I say nowadays, Orange County isn't recent or I heart Huckabees, but mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. she was a voice in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Uh, okay. Yeah, she was on May, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. So you know, she's still around, but um, like I almost expected to like look through her filmography and just like through the seventies see like ten big movies that I've just never happened to see that she was in or something. But that wasn't really the case. I'm looking at it now. She was a lot busier in the nineties, but she didn't even do too much in the eighties after this one. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I didn't oh. didn't see like a ton between this and Beverly Hillbillies. But so, yeah, I don't know how big of a draw she was or uh, this movie cost about 10 million. And from what I read and had a box office of 20.2. So it like that's it doubled its budget. That's not bad, but it didn't like blow up the box office in 1981 or anything either. And again, the fact that it seems to be completely forgotten by popular culture. I, I don't know. I guess this just wasn't like a super popular movie. Yeah. Ted Mill seems like a lot for the time, too, but... Again, it is like an effects movie, Yeah, but... for sure. Can I tell you one stupid thought I had? I So I caught the extra Lily Tomlins. Can I... About the cast. I'm going to tell mm-hmm. you something really stupid I thought at one point. So after she's shrunk and she goes to see the doctor. Mm-hmm. And the doctor's on screen. He's kind of got like a goatee or whatever. He's Dr. Nortz in the movie. Yep. I see this man. And I was like, he looks very familiar. Mm-hmm. I, so I say to myself, is that Teller 
From Penn and Teller? From Penn and Teller. <laughs> no. Ludicrous, I know. <laughs> I did learn that. But I said, I, I, know, I know that man. You do know that man. Uh, hit me. Oh, did, do you, did you not look it up? Do you not know I haven't, no. I know it's not Teller. Oh, he's, uh, he's, it's funny. He's also one of the villains in Inner Space. Son of a bitch. Okay. He's the, the dude, it's like him and a woman get shrunk down and they're like oh, half-sized people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. You're right. Oh, that's amazing. He's also memorably uh, in the Blues Brothers. Um, he's got like a small part. Uh, okay. He's like a he's like a Nazi <laughs> in the Blues Brothers. Jeez, I haven't seen that in so long. But okay, all right. He's also in the Burbs, Gremlins Two, Biodome, and Magnolia. His name is Henry Gibson. There's actually a fair number of recognizable people in this. Charles Grodin is Lily Tomlin's husband in the movie. I will always immediately when I think of him go to Beethoven because I saw that so much when I was a kid. He's the dad in Beethoven. Oh, right, right. But he's also in stuff like Midnight Run and Clifford and a bunch of other things. Uh, Ned Beatty is like the the kind of chubby guy that he works right, with at the right, ad right. agency who I always knew him from Deliverance. Didn't know until I was reading about him just now that Deliverance was his first movie. Really? His You've seen Deliverance? No. I'm very aware of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, like his... His first movie he ever made, he was raped by hillbillies. <laughs> right. Uh, but then he's in a ton of stuff, too. White Lightning, All the President's Men, Network. Uh, the the first two Superman movies, he's like uh, Gene Hackman's right-hand man, like bumbling sidekick. He's the voice of the big pink bear, who's kind of like the villain in Toy Story 3. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. And then... Uh, John Glover, who I think he's like a a reporter, or he's like one of the bad guys who's like trying to convince her, uh, Lily Tomlin's character he, to. Does he's the one that goes and says he's like a toy executive or something? Yeah. Okay. It's funny that uh, that other guy Henry Gibson is in Gremlins Two because he's Clamp of the Clamp Building in Gremlins Two, like the oh, the guy who owns gotcha. the big corporation. He's in a yeah. ton of other stuff as well. But, uh, yeah, I was surprised how many recognizable people there were for a movie that I really knew nothing about. Hmm. And then, of course, uh, Rick Baker, a classic makeup artist who has played a monkey in many movies, is the uh, the ape Stanley oh, in this. Right, right. Which, yes, of course, this movie, some for some reason, has a monkey in it. Yeah. Uh, like, I remember, again, didn't know a whole lot about this movie, and, like, when I went to watch it on whatever streaming service I watched it on, I think it was Amazon... You know, I searched the movie and then the poster comes up and it was my first time seeing the poster. And I'm like, why is Lily Tomlin <laughs> sitting on the shoulder of an ape riding a skateboard? <laughs> yeah. But that's just the incredible streaking woman. Mm -hmm. uh, um, just because you mentioned the streaming and you watched it on Amazon. I watched it. Uh, I rented it on iTunes. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a movie from 1981, but it looked particularly shitty. <laughs> uh, quality wise well i mean i imagine this isn't a movie that has had like any kind of yeah. uh any kind of like uh, transfer upgrade sure. or anything like did it look very grainy to you i mean it didn't look particularly good yeah but uh i think i just in passing i read that uh this was actually i think this has been put out by shout factory in recent memory 
But um, like for a long time, it was only available through one of those like uh, print on demand services, kind of like Warner Archive, oh, where like right, you order right. it and then they like print a DVD-R copy of it and mail it to you. Oh yeah, I forgot that's a thing. Yeah, it right. used to be. I mean, maybe maybe some places still do that, but mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't Warner Archive, but it was something like that. I, I gotcha. I gotcha. But yeah, as as for the movie itself, um, like like we said, she ends up shrinking because of these chemicals, and it's not like she immediately shrinks, like in uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something. It's really, like like anything. Yeah, this one's a gradual. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because yeah. you get to see like this the the like relative size of household items at different stages of her shrinking, which was kind of neat. Yeah, or just even the idea of being like, "Are you? Am I shrinking?" You know, at the first, it's like, "Yeah, no, that I'm was kind of cool." But like, mm-hmm. what is going on exactly? And you know, eventually, we get to the point where she's really fucking small. Oh yeah. But, you know, she spends a good bit of the middle of the movie, like, the size of, like, a Barbie doll. Like, she's mm-hmm. living inside of her daughter's dollhouse. Um, and they have fun with things. Like, she's doing, like, an audio recording of, like, a, her memoirs or whatever. And the tape recorder is enormous compared mm-hmm. to her. And Yeah, there is some good, like, bigotry stuff. Yeah, like, when she's uh, on the kitchen counter, like, trying to prepare food. Like, she's cooking giant bacon. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, like when she falls into the garbage disposal, that was all really cool looking. They do a ton of, I did catch it quite a few times, a ton of like the, I want to say it's like rare projection, you know, mm-hmm. with her just, you can like kind of see where the stage ends and then it's just a giant, uh, screen that's showing yeah. the other characters, but. A, a, a part where that was really obvious was when she was cooking the bacon and it's like, it's burning and they, it's like there's smoke, which obviously it's hard to you know, with smoke in the foreground in front of like a green screen or whatever, it looks kind of funny. Exactly. That's I'm, I'm trying to think. I was like, yep, that's like probably the main one I was thinking of that was uh, right on the edge of like the countertop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they use it quite a bit, but I mean, it works. I mean, especially for like the time. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the fun of a movie like this or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is like you hope the story is fun and entertaining or whatever, mm-hmm. but you're really there like in the pre-cg days you're really there to just see how they accomplish this right. thing which they do do some good bits i mean she falls in the uh the garbage, garbage disposal. disposals good i mean her with the giant ken doll in the the dollhouse yes. is fun yeah the dollhouse um, stuff it's not like they don't do too too much when she's like locked up and with the gorilla and the whole thing i mean they have her like isn't she like on his like uh the thing he's got on uh, his harness or whatever. Yeah, he's wearing like a collar. Yeah. <laughs> like a studded <laughs> collar. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. They play that up a bit. I mean, this, this, this movie starts going off the rails, man. Once they got throwing, throwing monkeys in there. Definitely. Yeah, it's really, it's just, it's one of those things where I, I, I didn't know a ton about it going in. So I'm expecting, you know, I knew it was going to be a comedy, but. I didn't expect it to be so goofy. Like, yeah, by the end when it's just all of a sudden in the third act, she's locked up in a room with a very intelligent ape and Mm -hmm. uh, her and the ape and this like bumbling lab technician are like running around in a very Blues Brothers style fashion where it's like just 
you know, giant crowds of security guards or cops or whatever falling over each other and like yeah. blasting the shit out of doors to break through them. And there was like a never ending like stream of I don't know what they are security guards or cops. Yeah. Can't really tell. They're, well, they're not cops because I thought they were because they kind of look like they were dressed like them. But inevitably, when they break out of the facility and all those guys are chasing them, she, uh, the lab tech guy runs up to the police and he's like, arrest me to like right, get away from right, them. Right. And all the guards like turn and run away. Well, they're packing heat though, Mills, you know, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, this is, this is the eighties and or seventies in the lab situation. Who knows, hell knows what was going on. <laughs> yeah. They, um, it's not really important, but there is this little subplot where, so when the regular doctors can't figure out what's wrong with her, they send her to some institute. I forget the term for it, but it was basically like a place that, you know, they specialize in the unexplainable phenomena, basically. And then once the doctors realize what's happening to her, they hook up with this like evil organization, almost like Spectre from James <laughs> Bond, and they capture her. Because yep. they want to use her blood to shrink the world or something. Like, their plan is so vague because it's not, it's not important and it's obviously right. just played for humor. But it feels like they basically, like, the 1% wants to shrink everybody else in the world so they'll be the only big ones and they'll be able to control people even yeah. more or something. Well, it's like, yeah, shrink your enemies so that they're no longer uh, a threat. Yeah. Whereas in something like Ant-Man, they want to shrink people to make them a threat, like right. armies of miniature soldiers. Right. That's what I'm saying, man. Sh the shorties, it's just never ending what you can do with these <laughs> kinds of movies, Billy. Yeah. But it's hard to describe. I don't even know how to put it into words or what to call it. But this is a movie that it falls into like a weird category of comedies that I feel like they don't make anymore that like they kind of annoy me where it's just like, it's kind of like how I've always felt about the Goonies. Like part of the humor is just, there's utter chaos. Mm -hmm. And like when the kids are around, there's just like 7,000 things going on at once. And it's almost like a sensory overload. And I, I get like annoyed at the movie and I just wanted to like calm the fuck down a little bit and like be like, have a, like a plot <laughs> instead of just being absolute nonsense. But it's like, they they keep up this tone of like, even though something crazy is happening to her, like life moves on and her husband is still kind mm -hmm. of like a shitty husband and right. uh, everyone's constantly trying to convince her to do things she doesn't want to do. And she, like the fucking maid won't turn the fucking music down and almost <laughs> like grinds her up in the garbage disposal and the kids are uh -huh. still running around like crazy and there's a fucking monkey and it's like... Uh, Security guards running everywhere. It's just the movie is like pure chaos most of the time. Uh, I need a like a context free clip of that that rant you just made without <laughs> saying what the movie was because it was great. Uh, I'm not going to acknowledge the Goonies slander, but um, this I actually do find this movie to be annoying as well. Yeah, <laughs> Dude, that, I like, mean that was always and you know we we watched the Goonies not super long ago uh -huh. and. I definitely came around a little more on it, but like that was always from the first and previous to our recording for this show. The only time I had ever seen it, mm -hmm. the thing that annoyed me was that like whenever there were scenes with the kids, they were all just constantly talking over each other. And I know it's an aesthetic thing, like trying to comment on kids are just fucking bananas and off the wall all the mm -hmm. time as it is. But it's just like that 
I can find frustrating and annoying when like a part of me wants to pay attention to the plot and like wants to be more invested in the story, but the movie is more concerned with just, we're going to give you a vibe of absolute chaos. Like it's not your jam. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's not something that, uh, I'm partial to. (laughs) And this movie definitely has that. Yeah. Lily Tomlin's kids are bonkers maniacs in this. I think, the score, music, soundtrack, whatever in this, I find like completely annoying. Mm. This just seems like a weird time for this kind of movie, like late seventies, early eighties. Like, I don't really know like how to put my finger on it exactly, but it just doesn't, it feels just so odd. It just feels like an odd movie. Yeah. It feels like, uh, I don't even know if slap together is the right term either, but it's just... It uh, does feel like a little directionless at times, and they're just introducing new elements right and left to the point where it almost feels like from week to week they're like making up what's going to happen the next week, the week before. Yeah, maybe, because it's just... That's just peculiar. And it's just made at a time where it's like... Well, I don't know if... Joel Schumacher's got some... Got some great movies, but I'm not going to say this is one of them because this is this I mean, early for him. It just doesn't. It doesn't feel like it has any kind of style or flair or anything to it. I mean, this was early for him. I think he had only directed one or two things, including The Wiz, before this. Uh, but this was only like his third movie or something yeah. like that. I think this definitely feels like more of a um, more of a John Landis movie than a uh, a Joel Schumacher movie. Yeah. Like, but, I think that he could have, like, his style of filmmaking, he could have turned this into something a little better than what yeah, Joel Schumacher did. Right, but, yeah, I could see that. But, I mean, when he left this movie, uh, he went on to do An American Werewolf in London instead. And that movie's well, fucking great. So. I mean, yeah, so, like, let's, we're going to let history play out that way ten times out of ten. Yeah. Weird, weird fucking movie. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, John Landis and um, uh, what's his name, who directed Inner Space and Gremlins. Joe Dante. Yeah, those guys were like, are like super good, like lifelong friends. And they both ended up like working on or trying to make movies about people who shrink. <laughs> right. Like, it makes me wonder, would Inner Space have been made by Joe Dante if his buddy John Landis had managed to make The Incredible Shrinking Jeez. Woman once upon a time? Imagine. Imagine that, Mills. <laughs> Not like inner space took the world by storm or anything as well, and feels like took my world by storm. For better or worse, it's also kind of a forgotten movie at this point. But <laughs> take that back. I'm not. That, that's not the judgment of its quality. Just, I mean, that would be interesting. Now to be like uh, man on the street, like which of these movies are have you heard of? I, surely, I would think more people have heard of inner space, but <laughs> I think so. But you never know. Yeah. But yeah, uh, for what it's worth, that's an incredible shrinking woman. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one. So uh, shall we jump ahead uh, like 30-something uh, 30 30 years? Yeah, yeah let's do it. <laughs> uh, so next up from 2015, we have Ant-Man. In the right hands, the relationship between man and the suit is symbiotic. The suit has power. The man harnesses that power. You need to be skillful, agile, and above all, you need to be fast. You should be able to shrink and grow on a dime. So your size always suits your needs. Now dive through the keyhole, Scott. 
You charge big, you dive small, then you emerge big. Probably the first, like, infamous Marvel movie in that there was all that behind-the-scenes scuttlebutt about changing directors. Uh, Well, I have it all written down here. Before we begin with the review proper, would you like to hear the history of Ant-Man? You know I do. (laughs) All right, so going way back into the late 1980s, Stan Lee pitched Ant-Man to New World Pictures, which, for those paying attention at home was Roger Corman's production company Uh. before he sold it. (laughs) And it went into development with new world pictures, but was eventually scrapped from what I read because at the time, honey, I shrunk the kids was about to come out Mm. and it was like being promoted as like a big property. And And I guess he hmm? did the fantastic four movie, right? Corman. Yeah. His company. (laughs) Yeah. But this was before that. Uh yeah, because the Fantastic Four movie was like ninety two or nineties. Like yeah, yeah, early early to mid nineties, something okay. like that. All right, carry on. Uh but they were also were they the ones no, Canon Films was gonna do uh Spider Man, yeah. which then somehow oddly turned into Cyborg, but <laughs> we've we probably already talked about that <laughs> on the did. episode we reviewed Cyborg. Uh we did. Um so then this came out in an interview with Paul Rudd on the Howard Stern show. I don't even understand how or why this makes sense. But according to Howard Stern in the year 2000, he approached Marvel about purchasing the film rights to Ant-Man. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if he wanted that to be a starring vehicle for himself or something, but... Holy shit. Uh, later that year, also in 2000, Artisan Entertainment, which was a subsidiary of Lionsgate Films, made a deal to co-produce uh, the Ant-Man movie... And in 2003, Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish wrote a treatment for them, which Wright believes they never even bothered showing to Marvel. Oh, that so, far back he was involved? Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. So in 2004, he went straight to Marvel Studios and had a meeting with Kevin Feige and pitched them their version of the movie. And uh, two years later in 2006, Marvel hired them to make Ant-Man as part of their first slate of independently produced films because two years later they would put out Iron Man, which was the first like Marvel Studios production that wasn't put out by like Fox or Sony mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. or Paramount. Um, so yeah, they were planning on that being one of their early ones. Oh, wow. So yeah, they were hired in 2006 to make Ant-Man. Uh, and then all the way in 2012 at the... San Diego Comic-Con Marvel screened test footage that Edgar Wright had shot over the course of a week to show the look and feel of the film and its effects. Do you remember that reel? What year was it? 2012. So I believe that was the year that Avengers came out. It was. I'm sure I saw it, but I'm, I don't recollect. To my recollection, it was a version of the scene that actually appears in the movie where Ant-Man like runs along the top of a gun. Okay. That somebody is holding. Yep, yep. Uh, I remember seeing that footage. Um, So then between 2008 and 2014, Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish turned in five drafts of the script. Jesus. And then in May 2014, Marvel and Edgar Wright announced that he was leaving the project over, quote, differences in their vision of the film. Uh, Edgar Wright had to say... I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie. Uh, He also added that at one point, Marvel wanted to do a draft of the script not written by him, 
And he said, suddenly becoming a director for hire on it, you're sort of less emotionally invested and you start to wonder why you're there really. Mm. So that was why he wanted to leave. And then Adam McKay immediately entered negotiations to direct, but ended up declining out of respect for Edgar Wright, but stayed on as the new writer because they had already hired Paul Rudd and he'd worked with Paul Rudd a bunch of times in some of his comedy movies with like Will Ferrell and those guys. Right. And uh, so he wanted to be there as part of this Paul Rudd project. And Peyton Reed, who allegedly is a big comic book fan, was announced as the new director a mere 15 days after Edgar Wright departed the project. Jeez. Well, it was really in the, really in the pipeline. They probably had to get this thing done already. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had been planning it forever, and it had a release date in 2015. I think it did get pushed back a couple of months because of all this, but Mm -hmm. not a whole lot. That's pretty wild. And uh, as of 2017, Edgar Wright had not seen the finished film, saying it would be kind of like asking me, do you want to watch your ex-girlfriend have sex? (laughs) (laughs) So, like, he is an enormous movie fan. Like, we've Uh seen him post on his social media, like, his pile of movie tickets and, like, his... Uh, physical media collection and obviously he's just a fan of film Mm -hmm. uh, based on all of his influences and everything uh it makes me wonder has he seen any of the subsequent ant-man movies like did he see the second one or the third one has he seen he has to have seen stuff with ant-man in them like endgame right (laughs) you would think so or like that was 2017 that he said that quote like has he seen the first ant-man at this point i'd be curious to know I would actually too. I would love to know. Just like, but then too. I mean, I mean, he if he was on since two thousand four. I mean, he spent a good solid ten years trying mm-hmm. to make that damn thing. Yeah, and a ton of his and Joe Cornish's script is still in the movie. I mean, I feel like fans of his can tell some of the stuff that comes right from him, like the For whole sure. uh, Luis, like doing the fast talking and intercutting yeah. it with like other people's mouths moving and all that mm-hmm. has to be an Edgar Wrightism, right? But um, like the one of the big changes from Edgar Wright's version to the finished film is that apparently um, Hope, the Wasp character played by Evangeline Lilly, is hardly in his original script. Oh, interesting. So they like beefed her character up for the finished movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. But always thinking ahead. Mm-hmm. They gotta. I mean, that seemed to be one of the most contentious things between him and Marvel. That I was reading, because there's just fucking paragraphs about this shit on Wikipedia. But um, he wanted to make a completely standalone Ant-Man movie and didn't want to have to have references to, like, the other films and all. And, I mean, this movie doesn't tie in a ton to the other ones, but it does have, you know, the scene where he goes and he fights the Falcon for... Right. That feels like the the most shoehorned thing. Yeah. But uh, that was apparently an Adam McKay thing, because when he saw was a Winter Soldier, the first appearance of him, he loved Anthony Mackie and his interpretation of that character and like basically said to Kevin Feige, hey, can we put him in the movie? And Kevin Feige was like, that would actually be great because we want to tie these movies together. Oh, there you go. But uh, little things like the opening scene with Howard Stark and... um, Haley Atwell and her character yeah. yeah, and like the building of the Triskelion and, and stuff and like little references here and there to like the Avengers aside. There's not a ton. 
Like you could take those couple things out and it would yeah. really affect all But that even much. then it's like that's I don't know. I feel like at that point for sure, like that's what we're there for. Like we want these things to Yeah. But I mean that's probably a holdover from Edgar Wright was wanting to make the movie back before there was like even a concept that the MCU would be a shared <laughs> right. universe. Right. And now right. he's like stuck in the middle of it and didn't want to be a part of that for whatever yeah, reason. I'm sure got got up and probably vastly different from his original idea that may, who knows maybe his first script was the one he liked the best and now it's changed five times and then you know. Yeah. From what I read, it was his concept from the very beginning to have Scott Lang be the the main Ant Man and mm-hmm. to like work together with Hank Pym. I guess everybody agreed that. Uh, since in the comics, Hank Pym is kind of a troubled character who ends up like beating his wife that uh, they right. wanted to steer clear of him being the lead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I like I like that it's like a legacy character, even though we never really got to see, you know, mm-hmm. OG Amy around. I was actually while watching it, I was like, man, I wouldn't mind like a, one of these like one hour Disney Plus specials like uh, oh, Werewolf like a... by Night of like a World War Two. Yeah, Ant Man story or something, or like even the cool. one where the original Wasp goes uh, missing. Mm-hmm. I'll but, be down uh, for that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I liked I liked that they, like I said, made it like a legacy character and not just necessarily had to start start fresh. I think that mm-hmm. was a good a good angle. Yeah, I dig that as well. Did you like this movie the first time you saw it? I liked it. I would say that all along you know, of the like 30 fucking movies that there are now. Mm-hmm. Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp are in like the lower third of my rankings of all the MCU movies. Mm-hmm. Partially because, as you probably know, I'm not the biggest Paul Rudd fan. I do know that. I feel like he works better in an ensemble. Like I I really like him in like Endgame where he's a piece of the puzzle. And like the more supporting characters they give him in his solo movies, like Quantumania, which came out not terribly long ago as we record this. Like, I love having, like, Hank and Janet and Hope and his daughter, like, all along for the ride, like, interacting together instead of it being, like, Paul Rudd-focused. And um, not that this necessarily matters in the grand scheme of things, but, like, by the time Ant-Man came out, uh, you know, we'd already had the first phase and the Avengers and everything was tying together. And then like the plot of the first Ant-Man and especially the second one feel kind of inconsequential to everything else that's going on. Again, not that that necessarily means yeah, anything, yeah, but that's probably... it just always the first Ant-Man just felt like minor MCU to me. I mean, it is, which I think probably depends on who you ask if they want something, you know. I don't fault it for that because definitely it's not like a world ending scenario, which, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, you could say about reading comics and comic movies. It's like, you know, do they have to ramp everything up over and over, never ending, or can you mm-hmm. kind of take it back a notch at times? So I just always liked the third act with like the action and all, all the like shrinking and growing and, and like mm-hmm. the heist. But, like, found the first two acts of this movie kind of forgettable and lackluster was how I always kind of felt about it. Has that continued? I mean, to an extent, yeah. I mean, I still like the movie. Yeah. And I enjoy it. But, yeah, it. it, whenever I watch this one, I feel myself just waiting for the third act to roll around. (laughs) Interesting. I do like, I like the whole thing. I think I 
probably even maybe liked it a little more this time around than I had previously. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was good. It was a good time. Like I kind of like the cast. I like, um, I like Paul Rudd, so I don't have any like issue with him there. And I think, um, uh, Michael Douglas is like pretty good as like a cantankerous old Hank Pym. So mm-hmm. I always like that angle. I like the suit. I like a good heist, which I think they do a good job of, like you said, in the third act. Yeah. And I think, you know, like as we talk about as shorties, I mean, I think there's some pretty good, you know, it's all CG, but I like the, the, the bits of shrinking action in this are, are pretty fun. Mm-hmm. They definitely have fun with some things like, I love the idea of the keychain being an actual tank. Like oh, yeah. the fact that Hank Pym can do stuff like that, or even in the second movie, they shrink that entire building down and it's basically like a rolling suitcase. <laughs> right, right. Like stuff like that is really fun and ingenuitive. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff they do in the third act, like the final fight where it's like, seems like this huge epic battle and then they cut out to a wide shot and it like a toy train falls over. Right. Like, yeah. Stuff like that is really fun and interesting. Um, most of that is backloaded into the end of the movie. I mean, uh, what's his name? Yellow jacket, like mm-hmm. with the fucking suit on is cool as shit looking. And it's oh, just yeah. fun to have those two characters going toe to toe with those powers. But like the first, you know, it feels like in an attempted squeeze some action into the middle of the movie they have that scene with the falcon which does feel kind of like hokey and unnecessary i love anthony mackie as falcon and everything and it's you know fun to have him in there just but it's like a total MacGuffin scene where it's like oh we're just gonna steal this one thing Mm -hmm. um i do like the i think it's got pretty decent like training montage and you know i like i always like that stuff so Mm mm-hmm what is it? The first time he uses the suit is when he like falls down the drain and he ends up going through the entire house and all that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think all that's pretty fun. So some of that stuff is kind of cool looking. Like they definitely get some visuals, uh, like visual style out of the shrinking that we had never really seen before. Like they used a lot of macro photography. Right. And yep. like special lenses to get like, actual like low down to the ground like those shots where uh he's on the floor and he's looking up at uh michael pena's character in the bathroom and stuff like yep. that gives you a yep. real good sense of scale mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i actually like to when it starts to like the quantum realm stuff is like pretty funky yep I, I love that as especially in this movie it's just like a taste of the really crazy sci-fi fantastic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the movie on the whole, you know, there's shrinking and growing, which is a pretty basic idea. But then otherwise, it's like a lighthearted, you know, mild action comedy. And then there's just that. It, it's kind of like, it, you know what it reminds me of in Ghostbusters? Uh, Don't cross the streams. And then Egon gives that explanation of like, you know, your body exploding at the speed of light or whatever. <laughs> and it's just this little like, okay, let's not do that. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, they have to do it. And it's like, we have to risk yeah. it all to solve this right. problem. It's basically yeah. the same thing. It never occurred to me until just this moment that it feels like they probably stole that idea yeah. straight I from mean, Ghostbusters. I mean, that is a great example because I think you're spot on. <laughs> but it's it's a great idea to have that in your back pocket, something that we have foreshadowed. And then, and then at the end, the audience, while you haven't really experienced it for yourself, the audience is like, oh, that's don't do that. That's a bad idea. Yeah. 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 No, that was good. That's a good point, Mills. I like your style. Hmm. What else? What else? I like Evangeline Lilly. I mean, I feel like she's grandfathered in for me just because I loved Lost, and uh, yeah, she was I mean, Kate. she's 
she's one of the best parts of Lost for sure. So yeah, I think she's good in this. I think it's a good character. It's a good angle too, where she's like kind of like industrial espionage. Mm-hmm. And then like you know, trained Scott kicks a little ass herself. So I do like her. It does feel incredibly unlikely and written that if Hank Pym and uh, Corey Stoll's character are like bitter enemies, that Corey Stoll would like so closely trust the daughter of his mortal enemy. Yeah, they don't they don't show a lot to sh- to like um give you any idea of like how she's playing it. Like they only talk about her like being on his good side, but they don't really like show it. Yeah, you don't much. get like a good idea of her history with um what the fuck is his name? Uh Darren Cross. Yeah. You just have to take it for granted. Right. Which but is fine. uh yeah, it's fine, but it's one of those things where during the movie, I'm like, why would he trust her of all people? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's fun overall. I do like the, uh, I like the Ant-Man get up in this. Like, I love, I'm a big fan of like a old school helmet. Mm-hmm. They weren't quite uh, at this point giving nanotech helmets to everyone. Yeah, so came... like the helmet that folds back, I honestly way prefer to everybody having nanotech Oh yeah, hands down. I did read um, the yellow jacket suit was all CG, which doesn't surprise me because it's so glowy. But uh, oh, interesting! Pretty much all the time in the movie, Paul Rudd and/or the stuntmen were wearing a physical suit. Oh, good deal. Yeah, I actually wouldn't have guessed that they were doing like all CG suits at that point. Yeah, he was in like the you know the full skin tight get up with the dots all over him. Mm-hmm. Mm. But the Paul Rudd one was practical, the Ant-Man yeah, suit. Yeah, it looked good, too, because it's like a good mix of like leather and tech shit. And, yeah, the mm-hmm. helmet, the aforementioned helmet is quite good. Yeah. It's got the little like Rocketeer buttons built into the gloves, which yep. I dig. Gotta love it. It's got his Frisbees, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fun. It's like a little, you know, like I just rewatched because of like reading about them and everything. I rewatched the trailers for this movie and the second one. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the second one, Evangeline Lilly gets a costume and A, she has wings, which they showed that the wasp had back in like, you know, the Cold War or whatever in the flashback in this movie. Yep. Which they never bothered to explain, whatever. <laughs> but also he's like, she also has blasters and Paul Rudd's like, oh, you, I guess you didn't have that technology when you built my suit. And Michael Douglas is like, yeah, I did. But it's like, it's cool that he doesn't just have like wrist lasers. He's got like these little things that he can throw like a fucking yeah. batarang or gambits playing yeah. cards or something like it's something kind of tactile. And it's totally. like blue does one thing. Red does another thing. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I dig that. I like that. Yeah, it's something different. Because yeah. if you think like, yeah, her just having like zappers isn't all that interesting. Yeah. The wasp sting or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck they call it in the comics. <laughs> totally. Yeah, but I do remember, be, like, when they announced that the title for the sequel was Ant-Man and the Wasp, I remember being very excited to f- see her running around in the costume fighting yeah. people as well. Yeah, for sure. Because, like I said, I am an Evangeline Lilly fan. I remember, like, next to nothing about the sequel. I only saw it in the theater. Um, I mean, as much as I say that this is minor MCU, I mean, the simple fact that it's like an origin story for Ant-Man, it, it it's, like, way more worthwhile yeah. of a plot than the second one like the second one it just feels like it has nothing to do with anything and again it's not necessarily a problem 
but it's it, it is kind of forgettable and there's just like yeah. a random throwaway villain and <laughs> yeah. I mean I guess there's plans to do something with Ghost is she going to be in the Thunderbolts She's in Thunderbolts yeah. okay So you know maybe we'll get a chance to expand on that character but she's like kind of a nothing character in that yeah. one Yeah Yeah I don't even, I really I honestly don't remember isn't there like isn't she like a tortured hero kind of thing in the end? Yeah, it's one of those things where she's the villain because she's like trying to steal stuff and hurt people the whole time, but it's only because she's like in pain from like the quantum poisoning or whatever she's got. Is so what it's it like, is? have your cake and eat it too. And then they have, uh, what's his name, as uh, like the kind of cr- like the thief criminal mobster villain. Uh, I don't even remember. God, what's his name? He w- he felt like he was in everything for a while there. He was in that uh, Vice Principals TV show with Danny McBride. Oh, Walter Goggins. Walter Goggins, yeah. He's like he's like this criminal who's like stealing or selling this technology that Hank Pym needs or something. And the okay. end of the movie ends up being like a big chase scene around the city with him. And it's just, yeah, it's, I don't know. We're not reviewing that movie right now, but it's it's pretty minor MCU, mm-hmm. again, to use that term in, in my mind. I concur. Yeah. But, like, so Ant-Man, I like it. I think it's fun. But, you know, compared to everything else in its shared universe, it's still pretty low on the totem pole for me. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But, yeah, f- fun all around. Good time. Mm-hmm. Moving on? Please. All right, third and final film. Oh, what a doozy of a third and final film. <laughs> From two years later in 2017, we have Downsizing. Mr. Sopranic, you've got a call. Oh, thank you. Hello? Paul? Oh, Audrey, thank God. Where are you, honey? Don't be mad at me. Please don't be mad. It's hard enough as it is. What's hard? Wait, what are you talking about? Oh, Paul. They shaved my head and... And then they started shaving my eyebrows, and I just thought, what am I doing? I can't leave my family. I can't leave my friends. And I'm sorry, Paul. I just Where can't. are you? Are you at the airport? Don't hate me. Please don't hate me. Okay, okay. Take it easy. Just get in a taxi and come back, and we'll talk about this, okay? We'll go back to Omaha, and we'll think this through together. Wait, you're not leaving me here. Can't you understand how I feel? I feel terrible. I let you down, I feel awful. But then, then I realized I was just doing this because I, I was trying to make you happy and I should have been thinking more about myself. Thinking about yourself? Thinking about yourself? You know you haven't even asked me how I am. Don't yell. Don't yell at me or I'll hang up. Do you have any idea what I have been through today. Audrey, if you don't come back here right now. And see you all small. I'm upset enough already. You're upset? You're upset? I'm the one who's five fucking inches tall! Millsy. Yeah? Let me ask you a question. Please. How worried are you about your carbon footprint? Uh, not very. Uh, okay, so you wouldn't say enough to 
lose all of your worldly possessions and shrink yourself to go. No. So, like, there's a lot to this movie, but just playing off of your question, mm. um, I think, like, I... I feel like there's a lot of explanation that needs to go in before my answer will even make sense for people who haven't seen the movie. Oh, what's so, the better way to take this? <laughs> so quickly, uh, some Norwegian scientists uh, come up with a way to shrink people down to, I forget the exact dimensions. I think like five inches or something. five inches tall for the average so. human. I believe so. So they've come up with this technology where they can shrink you down to five inches tall. And like when they reveal this to the world after five years of testing, their big thing is saying that like the the biggest problem facing the world is overpopulation and pollution from like all the plastics and stuff that we have. So they their test is they shrunk down like 30 people or something and had this little commune for like five years. And because everybody was shrunk so small, they need less food. They need less waste. Um, all the garbage, all the like non biodegradable, like recyclable waste that they created fits in like half of a single normal human sized garbage bag. And so they're putting this forward. Like this is a process where if people shrink themselves down, we can maybe save the planet because we will be leaving less of a footprint and we'll be affecting the environment less, et cetera, et cetera. So then cut to some time later and a bunch of people are shrinking themselves and they've like integrated miniature cities and like buses now have compartments for little tiny people to travel and and all this stuff. Uh, But the real like reason to shrink yourself down in my mind, based on the logic of the movie, is the same reason that Matt Damon and, you know, it was going to be his wife, Kristen Wiig until she decides not to shrink down at the last minute. Like the reason that they did it is because like they are in debt. They don't have, they, they want to buy a house, but they can't afford it. And um, so the whole concept is if you shrink yourself down, in addition to creating less waste and less of an impact on the environment, it costs less for you to live because you need less water and less this and that less Mm -hmm. property and all this. So it's like, the government has basically worked out this math where if you shrink yourself down, whatever amount of money like you have in your savings is expanded. So if you go, you, I, I don't know how much Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig were supposed to I think to it have. was, it was 150,000 normal size money. Yeah. Like that was the money they had. Downsizes to 14 million or something. Yeah. So, like, that would be the reason. Like, your money can go a lot further when you're small. So, like, the minute that you shrink down, you're suddenly a multimillionaire and you can afford – it'll be a tiny house compared to a normal-sized house, but it'll be, like, (laughs) the most extravagant mansion. It's a mansion. Yeah. And you never have to work again. Yeah, which is, you know, relative to your size. And, like, that's a cool idea. And, like, that would be the reason to do it if, in the logic of this world, in my opinion, you were going to do it. I think they said uh-huh. that, like, 3% of the world or something at one yes. point decided to do it. Correct. So, like, 3% of the world's population are these miniature people. And they tackle a lot of the little things about, like, well, when you're that small, what about predators? And, like, all the cities are domed in and they've got this infrastructure where, like, you don't have – you're not in danger of, like, weather or whatever – and mm-hmm. there's a a ton of like holes I could poke in that logic that I'm going to I don't want to focus on because there's so fucking many. 
I can't help but think about them, but yes. Yeah, I, I mean, same here. Like, every point that they threw out, I was like, that's an interesting point, but what about this, this, and this? Mm-hmm. Like, what if they have heavy snowfall and the entire mini dome gets covered in snow for, like, a month at a time? Like, right. But then they probably have, like, normal-sized people who come and clean up. I don't know. Those things are not important. <laughs> like, right. that's not the focus of the movie, as we learn throughout. Unfortunately not. <laughs> but, like, then I was thinking, like, once you're small... They have these certain amenities and things, but like something that I always think about because I'm a a nerd who collects things is like if like the apocalypse happened, like the last of us, and you had to like abandon your home and all of your possessions, like I'm probably the kind of person who would try and take at least a couple of my meaning, like my useless possessions with me. Like that whole, if you were on a desert island, like what? you know, comic book would you bring with you if you could only pick one or what movie or whatever. Um, but like when you're small, obviously, you know, they could make like small televisions or, or whatever. And like, you can stream stuff, but like, what about books and things? Like, could you get a miniature version of like every book that's published? Or I guess with technology, you can read stuff digitally, but there's so many things that like, I want to know about this world that they don't tell you because they're really not concerned with it. And yes, and I am, so that's yeah. why I struggled for me to find enjoyment here because uh, ultimately I felt like a more interesting movie to me would be kind of answering those questions. I was thinking as I was watching it, there are so many avenues that could be explored but mm-hmm. in this premise. It would almost be better as like a series. Yes, where, like, you could explore different elements of, like, the society and how things work. and like Because totally. they, they touch on some interesting things in the movie. And there's a lot of little moments where I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. But, yeah, for every one thing that you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. I never would have thought of that. There's 12 things where you're like, well, what about this? Yeah. But, so, yeah, based on all the things that we just said, basically in the movie, Matt Damon is kind of a sad sack. Uh, who gave up on a potential medical career to, like, help his ailing mother. And now Mm -hmm. he's stuck in this, like, kind of seemingly loveless marriage. And him and Kristen Wiig, his wife, decide to shrink themselves down for monetary reasons. And then at literally the last second, she gets cold feet, changes her mind, and doesn't shrink down. But Matt Damon does get shrunk, so now he's small, she's big. Yeah, it is irreversible. It's, yeah, it's irreversible. So he's tiny, and so now he's just this, like, lonely <laughs> yeah, little guy, I mean, and uh, he's kind of aimless in his life. Yeah. Another thing they, they don't they don't explain at all, but they just show you. It's like a year has passed. He's seemingly lost his mansion, now has to work in a Land's End call center. Like Yeah is alone i mean my question was like they yeah they don't say that he quote lost the house i was almost thinking that house is too big for him so maybe he just gets an apartment and like sells the house because he doesn't need it but then yeah he does have this like shitty job like how did his i mean maybe in the divorce Kristen wig got a lot of the money and that's part of why he has no but they don't say that's the thing and it's like yeah i i Millsy is me just being my lizard brain. My lizard brain cannot just can't let certain things go because I'm all I'm thinking is like what 
Yeah, like what is she? Is she taking half of the tiny house in a divorce? I mean, now that I think about it, only worth a ton of money in in the tiny land. Now that I think about it, there is that scene where they like cut to Matt Damon like on a full size lawyer's desk, and the lawyer says something to the effect of like. See, I really wish you would have taken their first the offer first or something offer. like that, which gives right. you the impression that like Matt Damon was holding out for love or something and then got rooked in the divorce proceedings. But they don't specify really. That's what I mean. It's just it's Be- for some people. I'm sure maybe plenty of people don't care, but I'm just like, I mean, that's no, the I, thing. that's what I want to know more of. So the reason this movie is so weird and the reason it wasn't what anybody expected it to be. And the reason it's frustrating from the point of view of someone like you or I who's like, you know, curious about all the minutiae is that all this stuff about shrinking and even the like him being left by his wife at the last minute and being stranded as a little person and all this. It's and the movie was advertised as a comedy, which was part of the problem. Like people saw it and were expecting one thing and then it was another thing like the last half of the movie is it just it comes seemingly out of nowhere and it's just like i don't even know how to describe it like this was written by alexander payne the director and his longtime writing partner jim taylor like they spent uh, i read like two and a half years writing the script for this this was like their concept Mm -hmm. it was like a, a passion project for them but like in the end, like, what was the point of it all? <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, Milsey, because one of, one of my other big questions is or a two-parter of how and why did this movie get made? Yeah. Because I'm not sure of the point. It had a pretty big budget. I read... In one place, 68 to 76 million, but then I read somewhere else that it was 90 million budget for this thing. For a movie this, like, weird. Yeah. I could see it, like, plenty of places that money could go, I'm sure. I think the only reason this movie was made, or was able to be made, is because it had an A-list star attached to it. If this is not someone, Matt Damon or Matt Damon's caliber, it's just not happening. Yeah, originally Alexander Payne wanted Paul Giamatti as the lead role. It Never was originally Paul Giamatti in, in the Matt Damon role, Reese Witherspoon in the uh, Kristen Wiig role, and Sasha Baron Cohen in the Christoph Waltz role. But then by the time, because they were planning to make this movie, I don't know the full timeline of Alexander Payne's career, but I think they were going to make it after Sideways, but then like he ended up making The Descendants with George Clooney in Nebraska. I, I've never seen any of his movies, so... You never seen any of them. Any of You've them. You've never seen Election? Never. Oh, I love Election. Like Election is like the Alexander Payne movie for me. <laughs> he yeah. also did About Schmidt, like I said Sideways, which I remember being very popular at the time, but I never bothered to see because it's like a dramedy about wine and <laughs> Which know. one is that? Sideways? Oh, okay. It's I think it has Paul Giamatti, but it was like very popular at the time when it came out. Uh The Descendants was like a kind of a wistful like sad drama comedy about uh george clooney like his wife dies or something and then nebraska was like a black and white kind of weird 
dark comedy. I, I saw it. I don't remember a whole lot about it. Okay, so you're a super fan, and I haven't seen any of it. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, I guess his movies, I read that this was the only movie he has made that didn't get a single Oscar nomination. So I'm guessing he also had a fair amount of clout because he did, like, movies that people liked and were, like, critically acclaimed. And this, on the on paper, I could see people thinking, like, yeah, this is going to perform. Uh, especially when you get a, an actor like Matt Damon in there. Yeah, but totally. then, yeah, the final product is just so bizarre. Like, I don't even know how you could advertise this properly. It's got such a strange tone. Mm-hmm. And then just like halfway through the movie, they introduce, I, I'm going to butcher this name, but Nock Lan Tran. Yeah. Played by Hong Chow, uh, who... I remember hearing people were like very annoyed by her at the time because she, you know, she's got this, she's Vietnamese, right? Mm -hmm. She's got this like kind of abrasive attitude and like kind of broken English way of speaking. And she comes off a little bit obnoxious at times. And it almost feels like, why is Matt Damon so attached to her? Mm-hmm. And then uh, just the where it goes in the end is so crazy. It ends up being this like end, like end of the world apocalyptic drama. Yeah, for uh, tiny people. Yeah, but yeah, then they, it's they, like yeah. it feels like the end is nigh. But then like the attitude that Christoph Waltz and Udo Kier have about like oh this group of people is going to go live underground because they want to basically be Noah's Ark for the future after the world dies. Yeah, but. Like, even if that does happen, it's not coming for, like, another 200 years. So, like, it's, I don't know. I just think it's an absurd movie, and they just somehow make it more absurd with the third act, with yeah. all of that going to Norway and the, the end of the world. Um, clearly, I think it's just to give, like, some kind of, like, rising action to Matt Damon, like, trying to find himself. Yeah. You know, which I feel like... With the way the movie set up and like previously what we said of like all these other things they could acknowledge, I feel like they could have just never had to leave their little paradise cove or whatever it's called mm-hmm. and just, uh, you know, work that out there. I actually liked, I thought, um, Hong Cha, I thought she was the best part of the movie. Like, <laughs> I liked her character. I thought that whole, the whole angle she's trying to help people and getting Mad Damon to help, like, I liked that. I mean, they go, of course, they go off to Norway. The, even at that point, the only the only sign that you're still watching a movie about people that have been downsized is like their boat is like pulling a, a container of like normal sized vodka bottles or something. <laughs> it's like it's like they're not even like acknowledging that you know one of the the, probably the most interesting part of the whole movie is yeah. just, you know well that's it's. Like, I kind of see what Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor were trying to do. Like, this movie, when you really break it down, like, what it is, what is it about? It's about Matt Damon almost having, like, a midlife crisis and being this sad sack who, like, has no purpose in life. He gave up his one passion to help somebody. And he is, like, one of these people that's just constantly trying to save and fix people to his own detriment. And it's about him, like 
being able to accept his own happiness and mm-hmm. find a place in the world where he can be happy without feeling like he has to fix everything, which is the right. whole thing at the end where when he hears, oh, we're going to go underground and be like the saviors of humanity. He's like, I want to be a part of that. When right. even though like no one asked him to, but he just has this like weird sense of honor. Like he's got no purpose in life. So when he hears that there's this chance to maybe be part of something important, he like dives in regardless of whether it makes sense or, or anything. So like that concept about somebody with those kind of like emotional issues and depression or whatever, like you can tell that story incredibly low scale. And something like, from what I recall, the movie Nebraska that Alexander Payne also made, which just took place in like the modern day, uh, they decided to film it black and white for whatever reason. But, you know, that was just a movie about people and their interactions and relationships and emotions. Like you could do that with like a really cheap movie with just character interactions. But they, for whatever reason, decided to take this super out there concept Mm-hmm. and tell that story through an extremely expensive <laughs> production. Mm-hmm. And I don't fully understand why. It's like they wanted to make two different movies. Yeah. And they just decided, well, you know what? If we take the plot of the cheap one and put it into the budget of the expensive one, two birds with one stone, but it just creates this strange paradoxical film that I just don't really understand the point of. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Cause it's just like, ultimately you understand like, you know, showing Matt Damon's like journey of himself, but the way they go about it is just so odd. Yeah. And the tone is all over the place. I don't think this movie's horrible by any means, but no, um, I definitely feel like I liked it more this time around than the first time, but I mean, that often comes with going into a movie now knowing what it is. Yeah. And this, I mean, of course, it just leaves me with way more, I have like far more interesting questions than the movie asked of itself, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, which is kind of a bummer because it is like a pretty like a heady sci-fi idea that, you know, they abandon for the most part, to yeah. turn into like a character piece, which you would really be. just think like the majority of the movies about people who shrink down, they're like action adventure films. And that makes sense. Yep. Because it's like, oh, you're in this new like right, version of, of the world that you're not familiar with and you have to try and find a way to survive. Now, this movie, it being, you know, having the heart of like a really heady science fiction film, it doesn't have to be an action adventure movie for sure. It, but it feels like the way that the sci-fi aspect of the, of this movie would work is if it was all about the sci-fi and it was, you know, explaining things and giving its interpretation of things and trying to show how it really is affecting the world and, and whatnot, which is why I say that like a series where like over the course of a couple seasons, they could explore a lot of the stuff would be interesting, but it's neither an action adventure film or taking full advantage of its sci-fi because 100%. it is so concerned with being this relationship drama about a guy finding himself. Yeah, totally. And that's not to say that a version of this movie couldn't work, but this it's just so 
so strange. <laughs> yeah. If they just, if they kept it in their, you know, like the whole, the sci-fi angle of people, you know, there's no other movie where someone is shrunk down to go to a place that's been tailored for them. It's usually like, oh yeah, honey, I shrunk the kid. Someone's shrunk down and like all the dangers that are around you. Yeah. In this movie, it's, no, you're being shrunk down and going to the exact kind of place you want to go to. And then, you know, they show you that somehow, even though this is, you know, this is supposed to be a better situation for everyone, there's still like poverty, you know, the, the poverty and slums that are outside of the city limits. Somehow that still happened, but it's like they never get into the nitty gritty of that either. It's yeah. Like, I was just like, come on. I was like, now, like, go back to that. Like, let me know more about that. I was like, if you're going to go that, if you're going to go that on the nose about, this is where all the help, the help lives. And like, look at these downtrodden conditions. Mm-hmm. Only to like, yeah, an entire third act is in Norwegian countryside with the end of the world. It's just like, uh, it's just like such a, such a missed opportunity. Yep. I just found it to be a drag. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just a very unusual movie. It's hard to describe. It's you really have to see it to believe it, but it's not something I'm super recommending to anybody. <laughs> and not surprised at all that it flopped terribly. Yeah. Um like I said before, the budget anywhere between 70 and 90 million basically and it made 55. I don't think anyone talks about it, talks highly of it. No. I, I, my recollection is at the time Everybody was just like confused and not like a huge fan. Like it yeah. was just very middle of the road. And it's one of those things where with that concept and that cast and that creator behind it, it could have been something really interesting and like made a fair amount of money or at least been like critically acclaimed. But it just feels like a big swing and a miss. And yeah, I think it had a lot of hype too, just because of yeah. all of everything going into it. But mm-hmm. died died on the vine once people started seeing it. Yeah. Tell you what we really need to do is we need to get uh, get you to watch Election. Oh, if only we had a uh, podcast that forces <laughs> us to watch movies. That movie is awesome. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, something else that I never knew while I was uh, reading about this that blew me away is, uh, so like I said, Alexander Payne's career Election about Schmidt, Sideways, Descendants, Nebraska, like largely relatively critically acclaimed movies, fan favorite kind of stuff. I I believe he wrote the majority of those himself, him and his writing partner, Jim Taylor. But movies that the two of them wrote that he did not direct. Mm. I just don't even understand how this makes sense. Huh. Jurassic Park 3. What? And I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Jeez. <laughs> like, how the fuck did those two guys end up <laughs> writing those movies? I just don't even understand. Uh, Yeah, I got nothing on that. That's a That was a out of left field. I mean, it would be even more shocking, I'm sure, if you had seen a couple more of his movies to have more of a concept of the kind of filmmaker he is. But like Jurassic Park 3, like. That does not fit into his filmography at all. <laughs> hey, sometimes it's just a paycheck, right? I guess. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm in this weird place where 
I, I definitely liked this more this time around, like I said, because I kind of knew what I was in for. I still don't love it by any means, and it will. Right. Now that I've watched it for a podcast, and that'll probably never happen again, I doubt that I will ever watch this movie again. I mean, this is definitely a movie that I was positive would be a one and done for me when I mm-hmm. first saw it. Yeah. But here I we would are. say that of myself. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. Downsizing. You know, Milza, let's talk some posties. All right, let's do it. Uh, like we mentioned before, Incredible Shrinking Woman is Lily Tomlin riding on an ape riding on a skateboard. Lily Tomlin, in an epic comedy, give or take an inch, takes up a lot of real estate on this poster. Yeah, it's big at the top. It looks like it should be the title. Yep. And the fact that they that the tagline for the movie has Lily Tomlin's name in it mean, says to me that she must have been pretty hot at the time. So I noticed, I said earlier, yeah, I think so. I think our name twice on here. And then it's a skateboarding gorilla. Yeah, it's a painting. It's not a bad piece of art. And it's one of those old movie poster designs where it's like the artwork is inside of like a bounding box with like the text in it. Uh, I mean, it's all right, I guess. Yeah, it's just, it's boring, I would say. It's not bad or ugly or anything it's just kind of boring yeah they go for a conceptual thing with the title where it's the Mm -hmm. incredible shrinking woman and each word is smaller and smaller yeah which is fine yeah it uh guess it's just weird that in that in that title with four words the title the the word that you should give the least shit about is the and since that's the first word it's the biggest word yeah and then woman is so small. I, I don't know. It's like I get what they were trying to do. Like, again, on paper, good idea. In practice, I don't think it makes a very good logo yeah. for the film. Yeah, true. If like if you were like saw this across the way at the theater, you wouldn't know what the fuck this was. Yeah. Say, I was like, what's that gorilla movie? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, its eyes aren't even open. So it's like it's, you know, it's hard to be hard to make out. What are you looking at? And it's just like you, you think Incredible Shrinking Woman, you immediately have an idea in your head of what that would be. How a, a gorilla riding a skateboard factors into it? I mean, he doesn't ride a skateboard in the movie even, I don't think. Or even just, yeah, is that that much of a draw that that's what you would put on the I have the no idea. Sheet? I have no Me idea. Me neither. <laughs> it's so strange. Any, just like the movie, it's an enigma. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ant-Man, pretty standard... Photoshop, like, montage kind of thing. Yep. I do like that it's uh, Ant-Man in full costume with helmet on. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, they have a Paul Redhead floating head on there, but... Yeah. You definitely don't see this as much anymore with a fully costumed hero. I feel like this basic kind of design was something they did a lot early on with the MCU. Like, the original Iron oh, yeah. Man poster was kind of reminiscent of this kind of design. It was, yep. Uh, is that a tiny Ant-Man on top of the Marvel logo? Uh, looks like it. <laughs> yes. I just noticed that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think there was an alternate poster for this that was in theaters that was just like a tiny little Ant-Man tiny. in the middle of the Yeah, I believe so, the too. The poster. Um, you know, I don't, I don't hate this. It's like... No, it's... It's kind of dull because it's just a Photoshop job, but, you know... A a, a, a montage showing, like, little bits and pieces of all the different characters is 
always like kind of an easy win when it comes to a movie poster. Yeah. I mean, at least it's actually establishes like it's in San Francisco, which unnecessary, I guess, but mm-hmm. you know, still something different. Yeah. But it's fine. I mean, I wouldn't be, uh, it's not the best or the worst Marvel poster. Yeah. It is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, speaking of tiny little people in the middle of a poster, mm. uh, the downsizing poster is that it's just a white void with a tiny little Matt Damon. Yep. Giant Matt Damon and f- at the top of the poster name. Yeah. And then he is the draw. <sighs> what do we think of the uh, the eyes in the title downsizing being little cartoony male and female symbols? I, can't... I think they're they're bad. I can't fathom the reason for doing that. Yeah, because it's just they're they don't match like weight of any of the other letters, so they just look like they've been they've been shrunken in a weird way. And but like I get it, the movie's about shrinking people, but it's not like those are tiny people. Like if yeah, they are the like same height as the letters of the word. If they were like tiny little people within the logo or something, I don't, I just don't get it. Like what was yeah, the point of that not, decision? Like, why did why do they need bathroom insignia people for this? Yeah, yeah. We are meant for something bigger. Yeah, within the context of the movie, it makes sense, but it doesn't help to sell the film at all. I don't think. No. Not even a little. Uh, I mean, it's a movie about shrunken people, so conceptually having tiny Matt Damon in the middle, like it's a novel idea. Yeah, it, probably it, first idea you come up with, and yep. someone says, "Yeah, go for it." Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't, I don't hate it. It's not like the most effective thing in the world, but yeah, just another. It is what it is, Mills. Yep. <laughs> Honestly, yes, that's that's the best way to put it for that one too. Break it down for the people. I mean, it. I feel like it's a pretty easy win for Ant-Man to take the victory here. Uh, it is. I'll give that one um, four Pym Particles. Mm. Doesn't have a lot of competition, so. No. Uh, downsizing, like we said, it's kind of like you said, the first idea you come up with and they just went with it. Uh, I'm guessing no other movie had used that idea yet. So they were like, let's strike while we can before Mm -hmm. something else comes out and does it. Even though, like we Mm -hmm. said, Ant-Man had the alternate poster that was pretty much the same thing. I don't hate it. Uh, I I hate the logo, but (laughs) yeah, um, I guess I would give that uh, three uh, full size roses in miniature land. It's a good party favor. (laughs) And uh, Incredible Shrinking Woman, like, the painting itself is okay. Like, there's no background to it, really, or anything, but, like, the ape and Lily Tomlin look fine. But even though, like, the painting of them is pretty good, that particular image for this movie I don't particularly care for. Mm -hmm. Don't love the logo. Don't love the text at the top. It's incredibly dated. Yeah, it's just not a... It doesn't sell the movie super well in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like, would it not have been better to just have her, like, standing in, like, the, the giant sink with, like, totally. giant food around her or something? Yeah, have her chopping, chopping vegetables on her kitchen counter or something. Yeah, or, like, even her in, like, the dollhouse with the Ken doll or something. 
Something. Something other than riding a skateboarding monkey, yeah. which doesn't happen in the movie. Or her on the, the talk show sitting in the giant chair next to sure. a full-size like host yep. or something else would have made Mills, sense. Mills, keep these A-plus ideas coming because they're all better than this. <laughs> uh, so this is going to be a, t- a two... Two uh, slabs of giant bacon. Oh, yes. Oh, okay, it's more than it deserves. Bacon. <laughs> yeah. Let's fire off some buys and borrows and burns, shall we? We shall. Would you like to go first, or shall I? I'll go first. All right. Maybe I've telegraphed this. Maybe I have not. Uh, Ant Man is an easy buy. Not perfect by any means. It's uh, but it's a good time. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the in the namesake of shorties, there's plenty of uh, shrunken down people action. Next, we've got two weird ass movies: Incredible Shrinking Woman and Downsizing. I think from just an overall quality and honestly, a couple of uh, good performances, I would say Downsizing is my borrow. Um, I don't ever see myself watching it again, but <laughs> it is what it is. And the Incredible Shrinking Roman, I, I may be launching that into the sun. I don't think it really has any redeeming qualities <laughs> for me. In that I love practical effects, and this does have some, but just the rest of the movie feels like an odd fever dream of an <laughs> idea and execution. So yeah, that's how I'm rolling. Uh, I am likewise buying Ant-Man. I mean, it's easy among this company to choose that one as the buy. Mm-hmm. Even if it would have a hard time stacked up against most of the rest of the MCU for me. Uh, my borrow is also going to be downsizing. It's almost like mm-hmm. I feel that it's the lesser of two evils. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, right? Yeah. Like, there's interesting concepts, some good performances. It's visually kind of interesting at times. And then Incredible Shrinking Woman, the only real saving grace for me, kind of like you said, is some of the practical effects stuff. Like, you know, early 80s, late 70s, they had to do that shit for real. They had to build a giant sink and a giant garbage disposal and yeah. giant fake bacon and, mm-hmm. like, sets of varying relative size to her as she was shrinking. Like, there were a couple of different right. kitchen sets, like, of different sizes. And mm-hmm. and if you think about, like, what we've rattled on 80 episodes about the things we like, you'd think, oh, wow, they'd really have to fuck this movie up for us not to borrow or buy this thing. Well, you're right. Yeah. It's like that visual stuff is interesting, but the actual content of the movie, I just didn't really jive with. Like, I do think it's an interesting idea to have instead of like a shrink ray or whatever, um, a completely random series of events accidentally cause somebody to start to shrink like that. Totally. And to sh- shrink slowly. Yeah. Like that's a, very, that's an interesting idea, idea, but then the way, like everything around that idea, I dislike right down to like, it just made me think of, uh, is that kids movie from the nineties rookie of the year where the kid like falls and hurts his arm and then he becomes like an amazing pitcher with like a great fastball yeah. and he plays in the majors and then he falls and hurts his arm again. Then he goes back to being a normal kid. 
Correct. It's like the same thing here. Like she is exposed to these chemicals and starts to shrink. And like, that's kind of a neat idea. Just the, the chaos of it. Like, Oh, who would have ever expected that this random series of events would cause this to happen. But then at the end, it's like so telegraphed. There's like a bunch of chemicals on the ground and she lands in it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Next thing you know, she's, to she's back. Yeah, I guess we forgot to mention that at the very end, like she's grown back to normal size, but then in the final scene, it's insinuated that now she's growing, like she's going the other way. Right, she's growing out of her shoes. Yeah, like at that point, if you know she was shrinking to the point of disappearing, something I don't think that a movie has ever really done. Like, there's Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and there's like plenty of old like fifties B movies where there are giant people, mm-hmm. but the same concept of like shrinking until you disappear applied to growing Mm -hmm. that could be an interesting movie like someone who just will not stop growing and like what do you do like they're eventually gonna be like so tall they like reach outside the atmosphere and can't breathe anymore and then they'll just be like this giant thing floating in space (laughs) there's actually don't don't give too much of this away (laughs) this might be our next comic that has been done in a comic book short story illustrated by Richard Corbin oh back in like the maybe like the 70s like uh for creepy or eerie magazine or something and at the end of the story it's like this astronaut has landed on like a an asteroid or something and then like the whole story plays out and you learn that the astronaut has landed on this giant dead human body floating in space oh but like that oh. expounded in a movie could be interesting. I like it. So I kind of liked where they left it off, but I mean, it's just. Yeah, it is what it movie is. Movie on the whole, not for me. <laughs> no. Same here. So, yeah, we match yet again. All right, friendo. That's three in a row, I think. Might be. Oh, look at us. Let's see how we can uh, gum up the works next. Yeah, uh, so next episode, we are going to be joined once again by returning special guest Jesse Munoz. Our boy. To review some movies with us. Coming back for more. I love it. And uh, yeah, let's find out what we're going to uh, force upon him and ourselves. Well, Mills, how many potential episodes do we have? Uh, 237 at the current time. 237, Millsy. Millsy, are you ready? Yeah. 202. Mm, pretty late. 202. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, for next episode, uh. guest hosted by Jesse Munoz, we're going to be watching uh, movies related to the theme Out to Pasture. Mm-hmm. Here, here. <laughs> uh, one of these I'm excited to rewatch, as odd as that will sound. I, I have and, to imagine I know which one that is. <laughs> and the other two, I'm not entirely sure what they are. I've I'm seen sure two you... of these. I know what the third one is. Okay. Uh, Good deal. Yeah. Hey, th- this is why we do this. <laughs> yeah. To force All other right. people to watch a weird trio of yeah. movies. That's us being us. Well, Mills, until next time, this is Triple Threat Theater. I'm Joe Daxberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy. happy.